maybe we can start by talking a bit about the space where it was staged and then therefore how the stage was used and what the set was like. It's a proscenium stage and I guess it seems like a fairly small intimate auditorium. It seemed like a fairly narrow frontage, um, not overly deep, which and and you had a very nice uh, angled box of the two layered like stone doors and archways that I think lent itself really well for an intimate production where where the, the characters the effect had to come from I think clever blocking and from uh, sort of intimate moments as opposed to using say if we're looking back at the Hamlet starring Benedict Cumberbatch they could use the grandioseness of the stage to try and sell their message here it had to be delivered more through performances and clever blocking which I think in turn lent itself to a more effective film adaptation in that it was easier to capture angles of the actors and to uh, feel like you were getting the full impact of the production and that it wasn't being lost through uh, you know, a close up when really the breadth of the stage is where the message is reinforced. Yeah, I really, I thought the set was very well chosen for the mood of the production. It felt very cold and dark. I also liked how, how versatile they made it in terms of representing different parts of the world and different times of day and stuff. So like I kept, ex- I, in the first, few little bit I thought oh I wonder if they're going to change it out um the background and then they didn't and it just it really worked um I think and just using other other elements uh to suggest different places and different times well aside from Lear's throne at the beginning and I guess the whatever they caught during the hunt that, that they hang up um it's a pretty spare set there's nothing really on there and I guess how they do a lot of it is with lighting to create spaces and certain kinds of feelings. I think some of the some of the things that I think were really, really well done with lighting were the way they created the storm and they used sort of like bluish purple light and then a lot of and they had sound effects too of the storm. And then that was really very magical and chilling and scary. And then it also had those lights on the ground, those white lights that sort of created a square on the ground that they sort of used as the shelter that Lear was heading towards in the storm. Yeah, and the the fact that they used lighting to suggest time of day throughout. So it's like when it's nighttime, it's very, very dark on stage. And when it's daytime, it's quite light. And then when they're inside, it's sort of muted light. It just made the use of lighting to suggest the storm feel much more authentic than it might otherwise. Like if you're only using lighting to suggest the weather the you know state of the world during the storm then it can feel a little bit kind of manufactured but um yeah I thought it was it was very well done so like you have the scene in the storm or the scene where I can't remember who it is but someone talking outside one of the two palaces about what's happening with Lear and and where he's being sent now being in almost complete darkness versus the the light that floods into the sort of courtyard where Kent is being held in the stocks. And it um, just creates this massive sense of the world from a very small space. So I thought it was very, very well done. Yeah, I mean, I never really felt like they were always on the same set and that they had to do, you know, 
that you had to willingly suspend your disbelief. I, I felt like we were in different places. I was like, okay, yeah, we're at Goneril's now. Or, okay, yeah, we're at Regan's. Or, yeah, we're in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of a stormy night. I think that they they had so much control over what parts of the stage they lit and which parts were in darkness. And as you were saying, Caitlin, before about the in the end where they black out everything except Lear and Cordelia, like, they really have a lot of control over what they light in the space and what they don't. And I think that really helped to make it seem like you were in different places um, for each of the scenes. And the way that they would also black out between scenes so you didn't see people walking onto stage um, but they just sort of appeared on stage that it, it it was almost cinematic as though you were, you know, cutting to a new scene. You're like, yeah, sure. We're in a new location. Totally. And you don't even have to think about it. Um, and it wasn't confusing either. Like I was complaining about in the um, Don Mara production of Coriolanus that I couldn't tell where we were and who people were and that it was all the same because the set was all the same. But I never had that problem here, maybe because the scenes were demarcated more clearly that I was, I just totally bought where we were and I was never confused about where we were. Yeah. And I think part of that is, is the pairing of a sort of effective sparse set that is neutral enough to never fully evoke any of the specific locations, but still gives nuance that, you know, in, in, in pairing with the lighting and perhaps, you know, a throne or the stocks or um, some banners, if they need them, that can, be enough to very significantly evoke both the mood and the, uh, and the location. Yeah. Agreed. Um, I thought mm-hmm. that what you were saying about this sort of quite cinematic feel about cutting in between scenes, much, much helped by the fact that they didn't have an elaborate set that had to change. So I think if you tried to, to create that sense when you had to move too much stuff around, it would have been too long. And I actually really appreciated that. How, fast the pace was in terms of moving things between scenes because it's like with the Turner production, you know, it's quite a lot of elaborate stuff had to happen to move between scenes because it, there was a lot of elaborate set. Whereas in this one, it just, there were moments where I thought, is there more that's happening that they're cutting out for the film version? But I don't, I don't think that that's the case. I think it was just that fast, the turnaround between scenes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's very good. I guess, yeah, the, on the night of the storm is we cut between Lear and his, his fool and then going back to the house with Goneril and Regan and they, you have like a scene with them and a scene with Lear and a scene with them and then a scene with Lear and it keeps cutting back and forth between the two of them which is very kind of cinematic in nature because normally you would play on stage you would play out the entire Goneril scene and then you would play out the entire Lear I actually don't know what it is like in the text I'm guessing it does cut like that in the text but that that also had that sort of cinematic feel where you went back and forth and back and forth and it moved very quickly. Yeah. And I think a lot of that we can credit to the the staging and the effective choices they made with both lighting, set design, blocking. But what did you, what did you all think of the filming of the production? I was very impressed with it for the most part. I think there are a couple of moments where there were close-ups where I would prefer to be able to see reactions from other characters, but it was it was quite limited. I think there was only one that it really stood out for me, and that was when Leah loses it at Goneril and Regan, and he's got his whole spiel about, you know, uh, well, reason not the need. That's that's the bit. That's the speech, and he does the whole speech. And of course, he's very engaging, so the camera's on him for most of it. But there are bits which I think could have been helped by a, a wider shot, where you could, like, when he says, you know, you know, nature needs not what thou gorgeous wearest which barely keeps thee warm it would have been maybe good to have a little bit of a 
be able to look at Goneril and, and Regan and see what they're wearing because I feel like the costumes are really important. And just to be able to see, you know, are they shocked? Are they annoyed? Are they rolling their eyes at each other? You know, but apart from that, I thought the filming was was very well done. And I think it's, again, like with the Maxine Peak Hamlet, it's just partly, I think, an advantage of filming it over multiple nights and then cutting it together, um, which I saw from the opening credits that they did for this one. So you get a little bit more of a sense of allowing people not to miss things by your shot choices. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think I found it very involving and engaging. And I always sort of felt like I was watching something interesting without feeling for the most part that I was feeling as though I had missed anything. If I wanted to be really picky, the one complaint I would make is the lighting quality seemed to be different on the two different nights. And so sometimes they would cut between different parts of the same scene and the lighting would be off, like it wouldn't match. And so it would be like, oh, I guess that was day one. And then now we're in day two. And then now we're in day one. And it would be all the same scene. And then that was not that you felt that there was anything inconsistent in the performances. It just was an inconsistent on the lighting that sort of maybe took me out of it a little bit. But that, I mean, that's a minor complaint. Yeah, it's interesting. That divide didn't jump out to me, but it did It did feel like a very natural, I'd say almost like naked filming of the production. The, it, it felt to me like it captured the production as it was and didn't try and add too many bells and whistles or go over the top. And I agree that I think it generally did, like, the, I mean, the only times would be where they say, like, did the wide shot of the stage and the like what's what's that tiny ball of light in the corner and then they zoom and show the close-up of the uh spurt of of grass or plant coming up through the crack in the stage um but i appreciate that they gave me the perspective that this is what it looks like on stage and now we'll actually let you see what it looks like and and yeah for the most part i felt like it it was a, a very effective it, it almost it almost felt to me like a like a hybrid the hybrid productions we've talked about before of an adaptation it's just a it was staged on such a, you know, in such a fitting theater to be able to capture it well in close up uh, and translate that to film. It just felt very natural to me. And uh, along with the, the sort of strangeness that, I mean, you, you had snippets of audience reaction, but very few for the most part, I, you know, when they said it was captured over two nights at first, I wasn't sure whether there was an audience present or not. And then partway through again, wherever you hear sort of a titter of laughter from the audience, and you're like, Oh, okay. There are people here watching it. But I, I think the absence of a lot of audience reaction uh, also kept me in the moment of the of the play without sort of feeling removed as a sort of a third party audience. It's kind of interesting. It's like the polar opposite of the 12th, 12th night at the Globe, where you could see the audience all the time and seeing them there was really important to understanding what was going on and feeling like you were a part of it and where they were constantly interacting with the audience. Whereas even in this production where there are a lot of soliloquies to the audience or asides to the audience, we pretty much never see the audience and the filming doesn't seem very concerned with giving us different perspectives of the stage from the audience's perspective. Like it kind of felt more like there were cameras just around the stage as opposed to showing us, you know, the front row and the back row and the balcony. And you don't mm -hmm. see that, you know, in the Maxine P. Hamlet, there is that view from above. So you got the feeling of what it was like to see the production from the balcony. Whereas this recording didn't seem very concerned with giving us those views from different parts of the the theater or really seeing the audience. 
which I think in this particular production, and that's partly because it's a proscenium stage, I think made it help to make it more immersive because you weren't taken out of it by seeing like a row of heads. You were just watching what was going on and it was very much contained within that box. Yeah. I feel like audience reactions and being able to see them or hear them is more important for me in a comedy too than, than the tragedy. And I think, because I mean, there were a few moments where there were funny lines and I didn't hear a laugh, but it, might not have been it might not be that it wasn't there it's just that we couldn't hear it but um very few like most of the funny lines you could hear a laugh from the audience and i think that's that's what i find. i mean that's what was so great about being able to see the audience and and the globe 12th night was and hear them was just that and sort of infectious laughter and um you really don't need that in leah it's <laughs> <laughs> not that much laughter in leah and so i think yeah, having the, that sort of emotional intensity of just being there as if you're just looking at the people on the stage instead of being able to place yourself amongst the audience. I think it worked really well for this particular play. And there's also less meta theater kind of stuff going on in the, in this production. Aside from, I mean, there's Edgar who's pretending to be poor Tom and there's Edmund who's pretending to care about Gloucester. But otherwise, people are pretty much appearing as they are so that you don't necessarily need that extra level to highlight that people are acting and pretending to be people who they aren't and that they're on stage that you could just sort of go with what's going on and if anything you know it's Edmund's deception is the strongest of all and in having his soliloquy when he's confessing to us uh, about his plot having it just between him and the the viewer makes it almost more intense and conspiratorial and it helps lend to the later effect that uh, his deception is absolute and that, you know, everyone's going along with really everything he's saying until the end. Uh, I wanted to pick up back on Caitlin's point where she was saying that the stage felt cold and dark. And I'm wondering about how you felt that that that, that was created and what that did as far as creating the world in which Lear lives and governs and how that affected our take on the characters or the production's take on the characters. Well, as I was saying before, I'm not sure whether it just was that I was cold while I was watching it, but (laughs) it probably helped. But something about all that stone and just the sense of being in an old fashioned stone castle of some kind in England and having been in a few of those, there are definitely always cold and also, I think the costuming contributed to that as well. There's a lot of wool and lots and lots of layers that everyone was wearing. But it felt, I mean, thinking about Leah, King Leah, the story and how it came from, well, Shakespeare took it from earlier text or earlier stories that were based in ancient Britain. It, I mean, it, it, it worked for me It's in terms of thinking about this world as being Britain but not the Britain of Shakespeare's time, which was relatively prosperous, uh, old Britain, which was everything was a little bit more treacherous. The world outside the walls of a city or the walls of a castle was more of a wilderness and, and sort of a lack of law and order and a lack of understanding of what was there. So uh, that was really emphasized for me and just the, yeah, the, how it was it was often dark and there was very little 
decoration. Like, we sort of think if this was set in post-Norman Britain, there'd be banners up everywhere and, and tapestries and silks and torches lighting the walls and much more finery than there is. So it really did feel like, at least pre-Norman, in terms of the kind of set, um, whether the costumes back that up, of course, is another question. But, um, yeah, it felt like a an older, colder, darker, less civilized, in air quotes, in terms of uh, European ideas of what civilized means than uh, Shakespeare's day and, and how we'd expect to see it if it was a more mo- more set in a more sort of modern time. I don't know if that I mean, makes any sense. <laughs> no, that, that makes, that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, it, it also struck, it's just hard and barren, right? Like the, there's not the, the finery or fancery on, on the, the costumes. The set is cold, hard stone. The flooring is cement tiles with uh, like sort of rough hued cement squares with, you know, that metal grating that, mostly lends itself into the background except when it's lit up and it it's just this and and i mean i think again if we're getting back to the lighting helps contribute to this effect that it is colder and a little more dark and harsh and it's not filled with this sort of beautifully rich light even even in you know the opening scene in the throne room it's lit but it's not sort of overly warm and full and sumptuous it's almost a, a muted muted tone the the brightest i think we get is that opening of the second act when edgar's emerging out into nature and the and on the costume piece the one contrast is the french finery when we see cordelia come back you know she's the first person wearing color in ages in her blue gown with uh, almost the with the white or gold uh chest piece on um and it's a it's a sharp contrast to uh, all the other characters in the play it is really very austere that you don't really get any signs of sort of home. You know, that nobody has rugs or <laughs> decoration. It's all very cold and empty. And I'm sort of wondering a bit about the sound for this, because I, I hadn't really thought about whether there was echoey sound. But I mean, I thought the sound and the recording anyway was very good and that it was quite seamless. You know, you didn't have any microphone malfunctions or really even see microphones. But I'm wondering if part of how it created that emptiness was in sound. Yeah, I don't know how that would translate to the film. I I, I wonder what the stage production would be like. I mean, it. If I think if maybe the set was deeper, I think maybe that would have more of an effect. But I could... My my gut would be that I don't think it would have necessarily a huge impact, but there's still that that chance it would, or even just you know the sound of the of feet on on the stone floor at least would add a bit more of that cold echo instead of sort of a, a soundless gliding. I thought the sound was used very effectively to suggest the presence of a hundred knights, though. Like that bit was they were they were quite raucous yeah. and like. Yeah, it was it was uh, quite deafening at parts, which I think was done very well because obviously you can't have a hundred knights on that stage. But um, yeah, and I yeah I thought I thought overall the sound was was very good. It was I didn't notice it until I needed to, if you know what I mean. Like I noticed it with the knights and I noticed it with the storm. And I think there was maybe a little bit of 
suggestion of soldiers marching about later on when when the war started, but I might mm. be imagining. I, I mean, to me, there was there was the scene with um, where Gloucester is left blind in the middle of the courtyard while the battle rages, and that was another effective use of sound. What did you guys think about the big shadows? Because they had a lot of really bright lights and then people's shadows, giant shadows that were all over the stage. I'm so glad you asked. I've been wanting to (laughs) bring that up for a while. I thought it was fantastic. There were moments where it was done so well just in terms of lining up with what was happening. So like during Gloucester's, I suppose, gulling in a way, when Edmund manages to convince him um, of Edgar's treachery the shadow of Edmund looms so large against the the wall and it's like almost like Jungian thing with like the the shadow aspect behind him that we we can imbue that shadow with this meaning of him being shadowy and and dark and, and having evil purpose and the best moment I think for that was when Leah says who is it that can tell me who I am and the fool says Leah's shadow. And you can actually see Leah's shadow on the wall at that same moment. And I thought that was very, very well done. And it just, there were moments where if you had a character who was sitting on one of those benches against the stone wall, I think the bits that I remember the most were Cordelia did it and so did Goneril. And they were talking to someone who was standing up. And it was like having, seeing the, the other person's shadow on the wall was was just a really effective reminder that they were there, that this was a conversation between two people, even if you couldn't always see both of them. In a, in a play where you have people who are duplicitous in the sense that they're playing one thing and, and actually doing another, it's so effective to have these sort of two images of them, one of the person and one of their shadow in the same shot. Yeah, I I agree with you. Um, I think for me, it also added to the sort of coldness and the darkness of the atmosphere, because shadow sort of made me think of two things. One is noir films and older films where the lights were so bright that you would end up seeing giant shadows on the wall, and especially would be noticeable in, you know, black and white noir films. And so it, it had a bit of that aesthetic. And the other thing that was interesting is I was just watching Laurence Olivier's Richard III, and he kind of has these really exaggerated shadows of Richard III. Like at one point, all you see is his shadow and the shadow moving across this across the screen, I guess. And you're following his shadow instead of following him. And they at one point he's like whispering in, I think when he tells the king about, you know, tries to convince him to get to, to kill Clarence that you actually see his shadow convincing the king's shadow. And so you had this this very sort of, you know, he's this shadowy presence and this ominous thing that's it's quite clever, but also kind of funny and it's over the topness. Um, so I, I sort of had that in mind while I was watching this. And I actually didn't find the shadows overwrought in this. No, I agree. But, I definitely yeah. think they were over the top. They just sort of helped enhance the mood that they were creating through all of the elements of the production really working together. Thoughts on the costumes? I thought they were very, very effective, which they have to be. I mean, so much of King Lear is, there's a surprising amount about what people wear. And just, I feel like, I feel like I repeat this constantly, but the, the idea of, of 
someone's place in the world in early modern England being determined by what you wear or determining what you wear. And I thought it was done extremely well in this production. They managed to have a consistent kind of tone across all of the costuming while also having quite distinctive pieces for different people at different moments. So like in the opening scene, Cordelia is, is she's not dressed plainly like she's still a princess, but she's dressed the plainest of the, the three daughters. There's her in a sort of a gray wool dress and Goneril's wearing the brightest color and then Regan's in between the two of them. And considering how much focus is, Leah puts later on Goneril and Regan and what they're wearing and, and how, oh, you know, you know, na- nature needs not what thou gorgeous wearest. That was, I thought, quite important. Yeah, I mean, Goneril, especially the whole way through, she's pretty classy. And there's that decision that they make later on to have her hair flowing, which I think uh, says something about her particular expression of femininity at that time. But also with Leah, Leah's costume before he goes nuts and tries to take everything off is is good just in terms of it's it's simple and the sort of thing that you'd wear if you're in an army but you're not going to be in the front line fighting so lots of leather and buckles and stuff and I thought it was interesting that they had him starting to strip off in that first opening scene so when he gets very agitated and he starts unbuckling things and I thought it was really good way of kind of hinting at what was going to come later when he tries to get naked in the middle of the storm, which I'm actually very pleased that they didn't have him get naked because I was like <laughs> racing myself. That's like, I'm not sure that's that's what I want to see right now. Um, so thank you, uh, Kent and the Fool, for stopping him from doing that. <laughs> and yeah, Cordelia's blue dress with her white leather bodice looking like, you know, the sort of thing that a queen of a country that was going to war might have worn. And yeah, everyone's costume was, was simple, but distinctive and really served whatever it was they had to do in that particular scene or that particular moment in the play. And it was, yeah, I thought it was very, very well done. And I thought they were just beautiful too. They just looked beautifully made. Yeah. Despite having most of them being in very monochromatic palette, there was still a lot of variation and, detail i mean lending itself well to the transformation of edgar to poor tom and back again and disguising himself they managed i think all the transitions very well what did you think about the crown crowns and the garlands because at the beginning you have lear crowning his two eldest daughters and then you know crowning cordelia and then taking it off and then goneril and regan continue to wear their little crowns throughout the entire production. And then it's not until Lear goes kind of nuts that he gets that garland of leaves that he wears around his head as a makeshift crown. Yeah. I'm, I, I thought the crowns were really good. Just, I mean, the decision to have him take it off, take his crown off before he started dividing up the kingdom was really good. Just sort of emphasizing what he's you know doing abdicating his duty and um i mean it it backs up the text too there's a lot of talk of encircling things circling and breaking up round things into many pieces um so it it makes sense to draw attention to the crowns and i definitely think the garland is meant to um 
emphasize those well, sort of mirror that that lack of a crown that he's got a sort of a an alter, alternative crown when he's when he's mad and i don't know i don't know if i was imagining this if it was just edgar's hair maybe but did did poor tom have something on his head too i'm it might just have been the lighting but when i first saw him i thought he was wearing um some kind of thing on his head with leaves or thorns or first i thought it was a crown of thorns so i was like oh wow going heavy on the christ imagery there <laughs> but um it might have just been his hair actually now i think about it i didn't notice it but that would have been an interesting choice yeah i think his hair was just ruffled and then afterwards he had that mask hat kind of thing that yeah. he was wearing to disguise his identity did notice yeah. with with edgar that he had the weirdest tan lines because like this like like white shoulders and upper arms and then white kind of lower abdomen and I don't know did I don't know if they did that with makeup or if the actor just wore his his open shirt outside for a while and, and got some tan I don't know it was very strange deliberate it looked to me like somebody who'd worn like a tank top on the beach yeah because very, his very hand deep. went quite deep on his neck. Yeah, and his arms were quite dark, and then the rest of him was really pale. Yeah, it was <laughs> so really strange. I don't know that that was. I don't think that that was intentional. I think that's just like he had. And I was actually wondering if like he'd gone to the beach and gotten burnt. Yeah, this this, this sounds a, like it deserves a Twitter call out to the actor to find out the true answer. Yeah, whether whether he. I mean, did he go to the beach and get burned while wearing a shirt that Lord Byron would have worn? Because that's what it looks like, like the like open neck kind of, yeah. puffy sleeves. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad it wasn't just me who noticed. <laughs> it wasn't. It was quite distracting. Yeah. Okay. Then maybe moving on. The big question I have about this and about, I guess, a lot of productions Shakespeare productions is who do you think the target audience was for this production what do you think their goal was with this production who is it for what's your answer Alice (laughs) (laughs) I don't know it's an it's it's not an easy question to answer I think I mean one of the things that I think that I think about when I when answering this is partly what the space is because the Sam Mendes production that was at the National Theater was in the Olivier space. And it was a very big, you know, that's a huge stage. And they went really big with it. Um, and it was also went big with the p- politics. And I, I think this production seems like it's in a, I haven't been to the Almeida yet. But I think it's a fairly small, smaller theater. Like not as small as the Donmar, but more on that level. And that that sort of encourages a more intimate retelling and uh and maybe even retelling is the right word that i think that the other king lear even though it made really interesting choices was sort of designed as shakespeare for the the masses not that i think i mean i think it works even if you've seen lots of other king lears but it was more you know this is a big theater and this is you know the the home of shakespeare and so we're going to do a big production and in some ways this felt a bit more like maybe a bit more of like an insidery production, like for people who have seen other productions because they sort of make certain bold choices and because it focuses more on 
the family and I think some threads sort of get buried a little bit. I don't know. It's it's an interesting question about who the Almeida is, a ta- who, who their target audience is, because their tickets are actually quite cheap. They're between, I think, like 15 pounds and 45 pounds. Even the best seats are not that expensive. You know, they're not like 80 pounds or 90 pounds, which a lot of West End theaters are, but it's a really well-respected theater that does really interesting work. And I was actually just reading a blog post today about, it was written by a person of color who was saying that, you know, he doesn't feel at home at the Almeida, that it's so white and he, he feels like he's the only person who grew up lower class and that everybody else there is like middle class or upper middle class and white and that it's uninviting. And then they just put on this production about lower class or lower middle class people of color that has been getting rave reviews and it was the first time that he sort of felt more at home in there and it's I hadn't really thought of it that way because I had assumed well it seems like they have relatively inexpensive tickets so it must be for they must get in a bigger crowd but it's also kind of off the beaten path theater like it's one of those you have to know that they put on cool stuff in order to know that you should go to it in a way that you know everybody's heard of the RSC and Stratford on Avon, if you didn't know anything about Shakespeare, about London theater or, you know, UK theater, you would know, I want to go to Stratford and you might know, I want to go to the National Theater. I want to go somewhere on the West End, but you might not know that the Almeida is like a thing in the way that you might not know that the Donmar Warehouse is a thing unless you've been there. So I'm sort of interested in how that affects audience. And I guess the other thing that I'm thinking about this in the context of is I just saw this production of much ado about nothing at the California Shakespeare company in um, the San Francisco Bay area. And one of the things they did was they had, they added a prologue and an epilogue and added dialogue, which was really terrible rhyming couplets, like really embarrassingly bad contemporary rhyming couplets. And I think they did this for two reasons. One was they basically took pretended as though all of the actors were people who worked for the like Messina party planning company. And then they would put on hats and swap hats. And that's how like, and they were, it was as though they were retelling the story of what had happened. And then they had women playing men and men playing women and people playing multiple parts. And they set this up as like meta theater at the beginning because they were trying to tell the story. And then they kept having to assign parts to people in order to, tell the story and giving them like a hat and being like, now you're Beatrice and giving somebody else a hat and being like, now you're Don, Don Pedro. And that sort of, I guess they felt they needed to do that in order to make it more believable that you could have people of all different races and men playing women and women playing men and women playing women and men playing men um, and being able to swap that around. And I think the other thing, and I got really worried when it started because I thought they were maybe not even going to do Shakespeare's text. Um, But at some point they just, swapped from the really clumsy contemporary rhyming couplets to Shakespeare's text. And then they did the text all the way through without, with like very, very minor interjections. And then at the end, they added a epilogue to close it out. That was with the same kind of really embarrassing rhyming couplets. And that made me think a lot about like, why did they do this? And I think one of the reasons they did that was to make it seem as though, make it more seamless where you're, 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 hearing people talk in slang and contemporary language. And then when they try and finally switch to Shakespeare, I think the intention is that you don't necessarily notice it instead of being jarred at the beginning by how strange the language sounds. 
But also they did the text so well that I don't know that that was even necessary because they said it so well that why did they have to do that? And that sort of made me think a lot about, you know, who are they trying to tar like, that seems like they're very much doing this for people who have never seen much ado about nothing before. Um, and they're trying to say, oh, Shakespeare is accessible. And I'm not sure they said a lot of interesting things about the play to me, even though there were a lot of interesting acting choices and interesting blocking choices. And, and between that and, and the sort of whole big controversy about Emma Rice's Midsummer Night's Dream, which took liberties with the text in order to try and make it more accessible. And was that right or was that wrong? Emma Rice being the uh, artist, new artistic director at The Globe has made me think a lot about, you know, in the context of this production, like who do they think it's for and and how does that affect what kind of choices they're making? Yeah, that's some interesting context. I mean, my starting point is always is this an actor's production or a director's production? Because I find that there are some where it's clearly a director sort of using actors as pawns to execute a vision that they have, or it's directors sort of either giving a platform to try and draw great performances out, or in some occasions focusing in on an individual star, you know, tilting the play entirely in that person's favor. And I think, to me, this so to me, this was a uh, an act more of an actor's production, although a, a, I think a fairly complemented and like well cohesive and well thought out version of that that used the ensemble. I mean, clearly Lear's a starring role. Clearly, as the role of a lifetime, they have someone like Jonathan Price. I think he did exceptionally well, but they didn't, you know, overly throw the rest of the production out to focus on him. And to to me, I I didn't get a specific audience out of out of the production other than you know typical neutral Shakespeare audience was was my sort of read on it. Like I think it was designed equally. Like I mean, there were there were certain choices they made in terms of you know emphasizing the family uh, issues over the political, in terms of having sort of that organic character development throughout. But to, to me, I think it was equally accessible for both a, a first-time first time, um, audience member or someone who's seeing their dozenth uh, Lear, with the caveat that, of course, Shakespeare is not the easiest style of play to come into completely cold without at least some understanding of either the, uh, the story or having actually read the, the play itself. Yeah, I am. Um... I, for the most part, agree with everyone. But I, yeah, I don't know if this would be the best Lear production to see if you didn't know Lear, though. So, well, some of the choices that we've already talked about really only work really well for me because of my context with the play. But I don't know. Maybe that's maybe that's just me. But um, I agree that that it was it was all about Jonathan Price, but they didn't let anything else suffer like everyone else is really good as well and it, which just helps because I think that if you have a production where you've got one actor who's amazing and then everyone else is kind of all the other storylines or the other characters are kind of left behind it it just it doesn't help anyone so yeah I just yeah I'm not sure I have anything else to say beyond you know it was very 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 good I thought yeah I mean I've actually seen one of those leers and it was so bad the Stratford Festival in Ontario did did Lear 
two years ago, I guess, with Comme Fior. And all they did was, like, they didn't do any kind of world building. They just figured, we'll put Comme Fior in a stage and then have everybody in a V around him and then magic will happen. And it was so bad. And it was impossible to tell whether, like, was he bad or what was going on because there was nothing going on in the world around him to give any context for what was going on. Like, it wasn't even clear, are there actually a hundred knights there or are they making it up? Are they responding to a hundred knights and saying this is unreasonable or are they just exaggerating? It wasn't clear either way because they didn't do, like, it was a, it was a bare stage also, but it had none of the texture and nuance and and feeling that this this production's empty stage had and it was just like well we're gonna put this big canadian star and, and colpure is a great actor i mean he's a star for a reason but it just seemed like the director had no clue what just like didn't seem to have a vision for the production and so he didn't create a world in which this layer would make sense and i think one thing i would add to craig's sort of description of different kinds of productions is i think there's a middle ground which doesn't necessarily get enough discussion where the director creates a really vivid world and in so doing allows for a very particular kind of performance. And so it's very symbiotic. Like I think I love going back to the Nicholas Heitner Hamlet with Rory Kinnear. I think people made a big deal about how amazing Rory Kinnear is. And obviously Rory Kinnear is an amazing actor and he was a great Hamlet, but so much of that production is in the world that Nicholas Heitner created and and how he directed all of the other actors in order to respond to Hamlet and create a world that Hamlet was responding to and then which that performance made sense in. I think we found the same thing with the Greg Dorian Hamlet that, I mean, in that case, it was really Claudius driving the world building, but you had to understand what was going on with everybody else and how everyone was, re- everyone else was acting in order to understand Hamlet that, David Tennant's performance would not have made any sense in a vacuum. And so it's very symbiotic between the director's ideas and the performance of the lead actor. And I think this production is sort of interesting because there isn't the same, like the world building happens much more subtly. Like it's not high concept the way that some of those, some of those other productions I'm talking about are like even Sam Mendes's Lear was, vaguely like he was very clearly a dictator and there was like a giant statue of him as though you know like an eastern european dictator kind of leader that was sort of in the background and the same was true of nicholas heitner's hamlet is they very much created as this dictatorish dictator modern sort of eastern european (laughs) dictatorship in which you know that was a police state um and in this there isn't the same sort of like, I'm not really sure what kind of kingdom it is and what kind of ruler Lear is. And it's much more important, like the relationships between the daughters, like to some degree, it even came as a surprise to me when Regan says something about, you know, who's going to hurt me? Like, I'm the one who creates the laws, who's going to, you can't apply them to me because I'm the one who creates them. That that almost came as a surprise, because I never really felt like I didn't really feel the shift of power. Like I felt the shift of power within the family, but I didn't necessarily feel the shift of power within the world itself. 
which is, again, maybe a good argument for what Caitlin was saying about why it maybe is not the best production to see if this is your first production of Lear, because it's much more family centric than it is family. Like, you know, the family is being in a product of, you know, the the political situation, which is sort of like magnifying the family situation or vice versa. Yeah, so I, I felt like the, the the world building this in this was a bit different, and, and we were talking about how it was very reactive, and that you sort of got the sense of the world because of the lighting and because of how people responded to each interaction, instead of having like a concept, I guess. Not that concept, and I don't mean concepts is like a bad thing. Like I mean, we very much call, that's sort of what we called Lindsay Turner's Hamlet was like we had all these ideas and it was like a big concept production, but you know, even just setting something like saying, Oh, it's going to be set in the 1930s or, Oh, we're going to set this in present day. Like that's sort of a concept. And then that creates the world. And then that helps you decide how everybody's going to behave in it. And that because, I mean, Caitlin placed this much more clearly than I was able to because, and it, and I totally buy what you said, but my being somewhat ignorant of English history, I was kind of like, well, it's clearly a while ago. It's obviously not Elizabethan. It's kind of vague in what it is. I'm not sure when it is, but it's definitely not today. And it's definitely not recent past. Yeah. Yeah. There's no, there's no sense from the costuming of a time, like really apart from not now and just a general, not even, yeah. Like, like a time when a queen would wear an armor bodice, during wartime but that covers <laughs> so yeah. much time just yeah general past <laughs> and yeah I thought I thought that was definitely helping to kind of um, focus in on the family that that we don't need to worry so much about you know because I mean especially when you think about English history and and what particular year it is sometimes actually the year not even the decade is going to change how relations between England and France are, for example, and having that that total ambiguity, um, lack of specific kind of time period just helped focus us in more on on the family dynamics and and how the characters were reacting to each other. Yeah, I I agree. I I prefer sort of the ambiguous time setting. I find that concepts can be distracting both for me as an audience member and I feel like in some cases, even to the director, where they're sort of too focused on each scene on how can I emphasize that this is, uh, you know, this is the 1920s. And, oh, let's make sure they're wearing a flying cap or let's make sure that they're doing this as opposed to actually just trying to draw the best, most realistic relationships and portrayals they can and, and make the, the most sense of the story. I mean, the, you get run into problems when you have ambiguous timelines and then all of a sudden something hyper specific or seemingly anachronistic comes out and then all of a sudden that you know entirely ruins it and pulls you out of it but in this case i thought that having that sort of vague and very almost neutral costuming set staging timing helped to make it a a cohesive production that was a way of telling the story without trying to make perhaps too much of a statement other than, you know, family drama's pretty shitty. I sort of agree with what you're, what you're saying um, in the sense that I think that you're right, that a lot of the time concept productions end up overpowering the production itself. And I think the Stratford Festival in Ontario is really guilty of this, really, really guilty of this. Um, it happens a lot. Like I saw a Taming of the Shrew set in the Old West and it was horrible. 
And I literally remember nothing about the production except for the horrendous accents and the insistence on everything <laughs> being like cowboys in the old West and the costumes being set to that. And then there was an, as you like it, that was a 1960s hippies with bare naked ladies music in it. And I get like, that was actually a decent production, Yeah. but I don't really remember much about what it had to say aside from, I was like, Oh yeah, it was bare naked ladies. And I remember there being hippies hanging around. And, and, and then the Cirque du Soleil. Uh, that was the one I was going to go to next. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was literally where I was going next. Where they were like, look, we have all these acrobats and we've got people on, um, what are they? Those like things that hang from the stage. Trapezes. And then you're like, are those trapezes? Yeah. Okay. And I don't remember anything about the production. And I remember the production being like really vacant aside from, look, we've got Cirque du Soleil stuff. And I do think that that is what happens the majority of the time when you have these, when you're like, we're going to put it in a setting and we're going to make a point that where you're trying too hard almost to make a point that it's relevant without thinking through the context for that. On the other hand, I do think that there have been especially modern dress productions that are really, really effective. And I think Nicholas Heitner is one of the masters at this. His Othello also with Rory Kinnear, um, and Adrian Lester, where Rory Kinnear played Iago, was set in present day, and it was sort of vaguely set as though they were, it was kind of like Iraq war-like, and they created, like, bunkers, and, you know, it was all this modern set, and it translated all of these things into, oh, yeah, that makes sense, you would have this scene in a bathroom, or, oh, yeah, this would make sense, they would be sitting in their office with typewriters. Yeah, this makes sense. The women are outside on beach chairs. Like they, they really took thought about what would the modern context for this be and put, put that scene in that modern context and then used that to draw things out of the scene and to make sense of the scene. And then that really created a world that then allowed the actors to behave in a certain way. Like Rory Kinnear's Iago was very much a bro. And that made sense in this context. And it was like, yeah, I get that. That makes sense. You know, like people like him and he gets people to like him, but he's also kind of awful. And then that finds a like a current context in which that character makes sense that you couldn't have if it was just like a devoid of setting and time and allows for interesting interpretations. And the same thing happened, I think, with Hamlet, where they really played up the depression. And the, and the Hamlet is a student and the surveillance state. And that really, for me, in a lot of ways, helped open up the text for me and make, made me think, oh, yeah, this makes sense. This is very relevant to me. And that it's not just this highfalutin, you know, dated production. But of course, you know, it depends on what play you're doing, because there are problems with Joss Whedon's Much Ado About Nothing because he sets it in a modern context. And then you're like, really? You just believe that? hero's dead and now you're going to her funeral and now you're like yeah sure I'll just marry you like you know some some things translate better to a modern context than others and sometimes putting it in a certain time period makes sense whereas I like I don't think anything took in the Trevor Nunn Twelfth Night I don't think it took away anything by setting it when they said it but it didn't really add anything either Mm. I was just thinking about the um my school's production of Much Ado About Nothing that that they put on when I was in third form. And uh, it was set in the jazz age in a theater. 
So it was like, but it, that worked. Like it, it worked really well. And actually, I was thinking about it just now and thinking I would quite like people who can act to uh, put this on because, of course, they were all high school students. So it wasn't necessarily the best production, but um, it kind of I don't know. There's something about that uh, kind of crazy, decadent partying kind of feel that you get from that setting that well, I think would work for Much Do About Nothing. And for memory, it did. That was a very long time ago. Yeah. And I I think all of this is very true. And I, I definitely can enjoy those like concept productions. Yeah. And, and I guess I shouldn't try and be dismissive of all modern day or reinterpreted productions. Because you're right. I think if it's done thoughtfully and done well, it can certainly shed new light uh, on a production or give you an interesting alternative perspective on the play the challenges i think when a, a director just sort of blindly decides they want to do something either just to be different or to be provocative and then doesn't put the legwork in to connect that to the performances in the text maybe we can blame a lack of a good dramaturg too if you're going to recommend this production, which I think we all probably would, because even if we have issues with it, we I think we all quite liked it. And I guess I'm wondering, who would you recommend this to? Like, who do you think this is a good production for? And who would you not recommend it to? Or would you just recommend it to anybody who wanted to see Lear? It's funny, I've actually already recommended it to someone. Because <laughs> I was tweeting about King Lear last night when I was watching it and um and someone said oh I haven't haven't seen a King Lear in years and I'd actually love to watch one because um you know thinking about how good it was and um and I said oh well you should watch this one because it's really good but I also recommended the RSC one with Ian McKellen and I think if you were kind of wanting to do like a bit of a rediscovery of of the play watching the RSC one and then watching this one would be really interesting just to sort of see uh I mean, two brilliant actors doing two brilliant layers. I think they're both very good. But to sort of see a more perhaps traditional, I don't know, I feel weird saying traditional, but version of the play. And then this one, which has a little tiny bit of a spin on it. Yeah, I I don't think I would recommend this to someone who'd never seen King Lear, I think. I think I would say go for the RSC one or, or another version. But yeah, I think there's a few of the choices which might not wash so well uh, for a first time viewer. I was just wondering which, which choices you were thinking of. I mean, what comes to mind to me mostly is the idea of Lear as a sexual predator, because that seems like a new sort of radical idea. Whereas if you sort of thinking about what is quote canon, you know, like what, how do you think of Regan and Goneril and their relationship with Lear? They're usually the evil sisters. Whether that's, you know, right or wrong and that's problematic, but that's sort of how people think about it. And then you're looking for new ways of bringing out nuances in that. And maybe if you saw this as your first one, then you would have a different, not that that's bad, but you would have a different view of how the play worked. Yeah, yeah, that's that was probably the main one that um, that might be a little strange, say, if you've just read Lear and haven't seen it or even if you haven't just generally know what the story is it'd be a kind of a strange thing to have as your first one and maybe a little bit as as well like like going to see Hamlet and then going to see Ophelia thinks harder like it's seeing the text and then seeing the slight spin or different perspective or whatever on the text it's just I think a uh, maybe makes more sense but then it could also be really interesting to go and see Ophelia thinks harder as someone who's never seen Hamlet 
So, I mean, I, I mean, so I stayed silent on the point earlier, but I didn't get the super rapey sexual predator vibe from Lear. So, like, with with the what? kiss, what? What? Yeah. <laughs> maybe I should have. Maybe I should have not let that skated by earlier. But I thought it was really weird. I found like the mouth kiss like super weird, but I didn't get the like child abuse lead lead to it. Not even when he goes to, I can't remember who he says this to, but one of the daughters, he's like, you're not going to let me come in. And then it, it like, he he means, or in the text, without any of this context, just means like into your house. But in this production, it felt very like sexual innuendo to me. I didn't read it that way, but I I see I'm in a minority on this this issue. (laughs) Yeah, there's a bit where he's, he's talking to Regan and... He says something like he's, he's like holding her hands and getting really close to her, and he says something like, um, "Oh, you would bolt the door and not let me enter." And with the context of just the very inappropriate kissing, it's so extra creepy. And I mean, there's a when he's arguing with Goneril, he he gets very physical with her in terms of grabbing her, but he also grabs her and kisses her very forcefully. Right on the face, on the mouth. And it's like, that's to me just, I mean, the, in the earlier scene when he, when he pashes his daughters, you could maybe, I suppose, be like, oh, it's at a time when that would have been okay. But then when he grabs her and, and forcefully kisses her and she reacts like horrified, that's, that's really what sold it for me. And it just put this really uncomfortable, creepy kind of, veil across their whole relationship throughout the play yeah i feel like the only context in which like the mouth kissing might be okay is if it was really quick like if it was a peck yeah but these were like extended like just like his mouth was there for a really long time which you Mm -hmm. just like don't do like it, it would be as weird as like necking with your child you know like you're not kissing them on the mouth but you don't like start like kissing up their neck like that would just be weird right like that's the thing you might do with your lover but not with your child i'm, I'm glad to be ending our conversation on a note of controversy i'm clearly gonna need to rewatch it and uh <laughs> and maybe i'll uh, revise my opinion over twitter but uh, uh i mean at the moment uh my original watch of it i would like I would I would recommend it to to mo- I mean to people who are familiar with the play. I wouldn't want this to be like, oh, you've never read or seen King Lear. Yeah, watch this right away. But if someone is familiar with the story or has studied it, I think it's a, a worthwhile production to to see that that gets the story across in uh, maybe a creepier way than I noticed it the first time I watched it. <laughs> so I mean, it sounds like. Because a lot of this has been, if you haven't seen King Lear, I'm not even sure you should see this. Do you think this is a good production? Then I guess the answer is no for somebody who's like totally not familiar with Shakespeare. Is King Lear even a good play to start with if you are like a newbie to Shakespeare? I don't, I don't think necessarily. I mean, even, I mean, maybe it's easier on film. I, in, in grade nine, uh, we had a school trip to Christopher Plummer's King Lear at the Stratford Shakespeare Festival. And I fell asleep in the first act. I will admit here. We were in the side balcony and I was in grade nine and like Lear's like, I mean, the balcony scenes really slow. So I was starting on the balcony, like the, the opening scene in the throne room, it was just done like really slowly. 
didn't like grab you off the bat. So I mean, like in general, I don't think Lear's the the best gateway to Shakespeare. I mean, it's, it's one of the most complex and admired and well studied, and I think you know greatest crafted plays that Shakespeare wrote. And for that reason, it's you know kind of nice to maybe like ease in with Romeo and Juliet or something else before you try and tackle King Lear. Yeah, I would agree. It's um, it's so layered and and nuanced and so much of the of what's great about it comes from the language and the way it's used and so i'm not sure yeah i mean romeo that's the thing about romeo and juliet it's and we talked about that on our episode is that i mean it's also got beautiful nuanced layered language in it but it's it's primarily about this love story and this tragedy between these two characters whereas in this one there's so much i think there's more going on and yeah, I, I mean, I definitely, now thinking about it, I definitely wouldn't recommend King Lear as someone's first Shakespeare play. So maybe that comes into our our sort of thoughts about who we'd recommend this to, this particular production of it. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I wouldn't put, pick this as like the first Shakespeare play in part because it's just not fun. <laughs> it's a downer. Yeah. And I think if you were like, no, Shakespeare is contemporary and it's fun, maybe don't pick the play about the old king who fucks everything up. Uh, <laughs> and where people are constantly saying oh sir you are old i am old <laughs> like maybe that is not the way into shakespeare is being like yeah it's about an old guy a pretty awful old guy who goes nuts there might be something that's a little more accessible i'm just thinking now that maybe there are parts of lear that wouldn't make sense if you're not familiar with shakespeare in that time like they don't really explain about the fool in a way that I think the fool is more better explained in other in other plays, like As You Like It and even Twelfth Night to some degree that yeah. you just have to see him in Motley or some kind of, you know, you don't even need him in Motley, which you actually ha you have Motley in As You Like It. But you just need to see somebody looking kind of goofy and out of place and be like, oh, yeah, there is the fool. And you know how fools work, and so you understand how he's talking back to Lear, which maybe wouldn't make sense if you don't know about fools. And you're like, but everybody else just got banished. How is this guy making jokes and saying nasty things to Lear? Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Is that it? I think that might be it. I don't know. Caitlin, did you have something else to add? Nope, I think I'm good. Um, that's the end of our episode on King Lear at the Almeida Theater in 2012, starring Jonathan Price and directed by Michael Attenborough. It's available on digital theater. That's digitaltheater.com online if you want to watch it, uh, the recording of the production. I'm Alex Heaney. I'm the host of 21st Folio and the editor-in-chief of The Seventh Row. You can find me on Twitter at bwestinast. That's B-W-E-S-T. C-I-N-E-A-S-T-E. -E. And my guests today are Caitlin Merriman. Hi, I'm Caitlin Merriman. You can find me on Twitter at Caitlin Snark. That's C-A-I-T-L-I-N-S-N-A-R-K. And Craig Rattan. I'm Craig Rattan. I'm on Twitter at C-R-U-T. C -R -U -T. A simple one. And you can find us all on Twitter at 21st Folio. That's 2-1-S-T-F-O-L-I-O. And find out more information about the podcast and other episodes on our website, 21stfolio.com. That's 2-1-S-T-F-O-L-I-O.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being on the show, guys. My pleasure. <laughs> 
the end of this episode of the 21st Folio. Check for new episodes discussing new Shakespeare productions every Monday and Friday. To keep up with the latest episodes, subscribe to the 21st Folio podcast on iTunes. For show notes and more information about the podcast, please visit 7th-row.com. That's S-E-V-E-N-T-H-R-O-W.com.